Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Issue with the writer of that last Christmas carol. Um, He's obviously never had a baby before, as he says that baby Jesus did not cry. Um, It's important that Jesus cried as a baby because he was fully human and he endured all of our um, he, he lived the life that we lived, and so he would have cried as a baby. So I don't know what that person was thinking as they wrote that Christmas carol. Um, <laughs> um, tonight, I want to take some time to talk about church history. Um, I, I actually am thinking, um, don't have any direct plan for this, but I think like once a year, I may take some time just to tell you the story of somebody from church history, because it's extremely important that we know who came before us and the battles they faced, and the challenges they faced, and the, the different things that happened as they, um, as they lived their life for Jesus. And so tonight, as it is Christmas time, we're going to talk about St. Nicholas. Um, Nicholas. Um, at Christmas time, there's a lot of symbols. Um, those symbols are fun, and we should um, enjoy them, but we should also be careful they don't detract from Jesus. Um, One of the most prominent symbols of Christmas being Santa Claus. I love movies with Santa in them. Um, There's a lot of them that are out that that feature Santa that that, that I enjoy. Um, Tim Allen's The Santa Claus. Um, It's a classic. Um, They actually just this year released a... uh, uh, a, a, a mini series that's a that's a far in the future sequel to that series where um, Santa Claus wants to retire and so it's it's how do I do this what do I do and he has to interview people to take his place and um, there's the classic a Christmas story you'll shoot your eye out kid and then there's Elf Elf is a wonderful one where an elf that was raised a human that was raised at the North Pole as an elf um, goes to New York City to find his father his his birth father. And um, as Santa Claus comes to the mall, and he goes up to meet him, and he's like, you're not Santa. I know, I know Santa. You're not him. Um, but as we know, um, Santa's a symbol of Christmas, um, and, and that's, that's, that's what he is. But the question is, where did Santa come from? Where did he come from? Santa is a character based on a Christian in church history named Nicholas. Nicholas. Most know him as Saint Nicholas, but we're Baptists, so we believe all believers are saints, and so I'm simply going to refer to him as Nicholas. However, knowing Nicholas's story is actually a little difficult as the details of his life are a bit sketchy. Um, So um, the first known biography of Nicholas was written four to five centuries after he lived. That is, it was four to five hundred years before anyone wrote a biography of him. So that's pretty far removed, and so it's hard to know what stories from his life are um, legitimate, like they happened, and which ones are legends. And so um, I'm going to tell you his life story tonight as best I can from the stories we have, but just know some of these stories may just be legends. We don't know. Um, we, we kind of have to piece together the story and, um, and, and, and know that as we go through it. So Nicholas was born March 15th, 
um, 270 AD, so about, um, about 200 years after Jesus, um, 230 years after Jesus lived. He died December 6th, 343 AD. Um, his parents were a well-off family that lived in the days of the Roman Empire in what is modern-day Turkey. Um, their names were uh, Theophanes and Nana. Interestingly enough, my mother-in-law's grandmother name is Nana, so I don't know if... Uh, I told her that, and she didn't say anything about it, so I, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, history doesn't tell us how they came to be wealthy, but they were a wealthy family. But they had one trouble in life, one trouble. They were not able to get pregnant. Um, Theophanes and Nana wanted to have a child so much, but they could not get pregnant. Um, they'd been trying for years and had never gotten pregnant. They were barren. But Nana didn't give up hope. She didn't give up hope. She poured out her heart before God, apparently praying like Hannah did in 1 Samuel. Um, and late in life, she finally became pregnant, and they named the boy Nicholas. Nicholas was raised in a city called um, Patera, or Patera. I don't really know how you say the name. Um, I'm going to call it Patera. Um, he was raised in a city called Patero in what is modern-day Turkey. Um, at age seven, he was entrusted to what they called a, a pedagogue. A pedagogue was a slave that would take care of, of a child, um, something like a nanny today. Um, they'd take him to school. They would help him with homework. They would keep him out of trouble, that sort of thing. Um, Nicholas attended school and learned a lot. Um, he would have studied grammar and mathematics and writing and history and and all those things, um, but there was one, one part of his education his parents didn't entrust to the pedagogue or, or to the school, and that was, his, that was the matters of faith. Um, Theophanes and, and Nana had embraced a new religion called the Way. We know it today as Christianity. Today they called it, the, back then they called it the Way. Um, they would have attended worship on Sundays in a house church, not a building like this, in somebody's house. Um, they would have gathered in those houses, and they would have prayed, and they would have sang hymns, and they would have studied the Bible together, and they would have taken the Lord's Supper together. All the things we do, but it took place in a house. Um, his parents taught him early that Christians serve God by serving the less fortunate. It's countercultural to their day. Um, the, their day taught people you fend for yourself or you die. But churches organized to care for the poor and the sick in those days. Pagans would marvel at Christians. They would say, see how those Christians love one another. They take care of each other. So Nicholas grew um, physically, and he grew in the faith. Um, we don't really have an account of when he gave his life to Jesus, um, but we can see that he did. Um, as he got older, he spent less and less time following boyhood pursuits and more time pondering Jesus and the message of Scripture. But then tragedy struck. Tragedy struck. A plague swept through his hometown. And both of his parents contracted it and died. Theophanes and Nana both um, came down with the plague and, and, and died. So Nicholas went to live with his uncle at a monastery from there. As he grieved the loss of his parents, he ended up deciding to train to be a priest. That was what he was going to do. He was going to train for priesthood. And he made up his mind, as part of his desire for priesthood, that he would give away all of his possessions, including the inheritance left to him by his wealthy 
appearance. So this gave rise to one of the most famous stories about Nicholas. Um, there was a family in Padera that had fallen on hard times. Um, they had the, the family had three daughters. All three daughters were of marriageable age, but they had little chance of marriage since they had no money to pay a dowry. That's what women had to do back in that day. They, the, the, the family had to pay a dowry along with um, giving them away for marriage. So the father of these three daughters thought the only way these girls are going to survive is if we sell them into servitude. That was the only thing he could think of to, to take care of his daughters. And Nicholas heard about this, and he was moved to action. Um, he remembered what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 3 and 4, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So he came up with a plan. That night, he put several gold coins into a bag, and he went out really late in the night. And he went to the home of the family. The family was sleeping, and Nicholas crept up to the window of the house and reached through and dropped the bag of gold in. Some legends say that it landed in a shoe or in a stocking that was hanging to dry, and um, he hurried off. The next morning, the family woke up and discovered the bag of, of gold and wept for joy. They gave thanks to God, it, and, and this gold was enough to pay for the first daughter's dowry. So she was now able to be married. So Nicholas heard about their joy, and the next night he did it again with enough for the second daughter. And the father was joyful again, and the father hoped it would happen for the third daughter as well. So he waited up night after night, to find out who was doing this. Finally, one night, a bag of gold flew through his window while he was setting up, and he ran out into the streets and caught Nicholas. And he fell at Nicholas' feet, and he kissed him, and Nicholas told him, stand up. He told him to thank God instead. He told him that to, to tell nobody the secret of who left the gold. But as is the case when Jesus would tell people not to tell anyone about his miracles, um, everybody started hearing about the, the generosity of Nicholas. Um, so Nicholas began to train for priesthood. He forsook every luxury he had known as a child. He would fast often. He slept on the floor. He wanted to stay focused on his task and not get distracted by the things of the world. So that's what he did. During his training, he took a trip to the Holy Land, Jerusalem and Israel and everything over there. And upon coming back, he boarded a vessel that had no beds. He had to sleep on the deck among the cargo. And a storm hit that, um, hit that ship, and it looked like they would surely sink. But Nicholas trusted God to deliver them, and God did. But the rudder of the ship was destroyed. The ship drifted for days until finally they saw land, and it was, it was where Nicholas lived. That's what they saw. And so they were able to get into where Nicholas lived, and he was spared. Nicholas was finally ordained as a priest, and he took up the task with much seriousness. And after years of service, he became known for his kindness and generosity. One writer wrote, as people observed his goodness, many followed his example and teachings. They scorned a material, transient existence and placed their trust in the eternal. Nicholas 
as he was serving as a priest, was eventually given something like a promotion. Um, He became the bishop of a city called Myra. Um, There's an old story about how he became bishop there. Um, It's one of those things that we don't know if it's legend or true or not, but um, apparently the bishop of Myra had died, and the other bishops came together to decide who was going to take his place, and they couldn't agree. Um, they, they, they couldn't decide who was going to take over. So one of the, the, the oldest bishop there um, suggested that, that they should put it into God's hands. They should um, put it before him and, and let God decide. And so he told them, I had a dream last night. He said, I had a dream, and God told me that we're to watch the door of the church during our morning prayers and wait. And somebody's going to walk through that door named Nicholas. And the first guy that walks through that door named Nicholas, he's the guy. <laughs> And so apparently Nicholas was in town paying respects to the dead bishop and just happened to walk into the room and they asked him his name and he said his name was Nicholas and they said, all right, you got a job. Maybe that's how it happened, maybe not, we don't know, but, but that's how he came to be Bishop of Myra. And no sooner had Nicholas taken his position, Christian persecution ramped up, became very prevalent. Emperor Diocletian of the Roman Empire was very suspicious of Christians. In 303 AD, he declared that churches were to be destroyed, worship was banned, and scriptures were to be burned. Christians were forbidden from holding public office under him, and Christian leaders, pastors, were to be arrested, and regular lay people were to be forced to offer pagan sacrifices. This was Diocletian's rule. And very soon they came and arrested Nicholas. They took him into captivity. And they threw him basically into a dungeon. And they tried to break him. They threatened him. They starved him. They beat him. They tortured him to the point of unconsciousness. And he refused to renounce the faith. No matter how much they tried to break him, he would not renounce the faith. He continued ministry. Uh, he, he, he continued his ministry in prison. So he would comfort other prisoners. He would share the word with them. He tended to their wounds. He led worship services and prayer services in prison. Um, and, and this is, he just kept doing the things that he'd been doing when he was free in prison. Well, Emperor Diocletian died, and his successor, Gerelius, continued the persecution. But the Roman people grew so tired of the bloodshed. And so from his deathbed, Gerelius issued an edict for toleration of Christianity. He did away with his father's edict. And then came Constantine. Constantine is a well-known emperor in Roman history because Constantine had an extreme tolerance for Christianity. Um, we, we can possibly say he was a believer in Christ. He at least, um, he, he at least tolerated and celebrated Christians. And so Constantine, in 313 A.D., issued what's called the Edict of Milan, and that gave freedom of religion to all religions in Rome. Nicholas was freed from prison. He was still a young man, but he was looking older after the tribulation he had been through. So Constantine is now emperor, and he did a lot for Christianity. I mean, he did a lot. He gave property to churches. He funded the construction of churches. Um, He made Sunday a day of rest. Um, He funded Bibles to be printed. He placed Christian symbols on Roman coins. 
Um, and, and he did all these things. And, and one could argue that the reason we're meeting in a church like this today is because Constantine's influence is still going through um, from, from his time. Before this, they were still meeting in houses. If he hadn't have done all this stuff, we, we might be meeting in a house right now. Um, and though all of this stuff is good, he is very much responsible for um, the, the effects of what happened to where Christianity became corrupt in the Middle Ages. It all flowed from this. Um, that's a good lesson for history. Sometimes things that appear good now will cause bad consequences in the future. And on the flip side, sometimes when things appear bad now, they will reap good in the future. It's very, so, so Nicholas gets out of prison, and he returns to a very different world than what he left. Just very different. Um, so he comes back to his church in Myra to be the bishop there. Um, if you don't know, bishop is the same thing as pastor. In, um, but before there were um, all the different denominations, that they were called pastors or elders or, 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 or bishops. The term was used interchangeably. Um, so he comes back to his church to pastor it, and he's got a big task at hand as he returned because he was pulling a flock back together and ministering to people in times of pain. People had lost spouses, they'd lost parents, they had lost children, siblings, and friends during this persecution. Some of the church members would have been so outraged by the persecution that they would have taken revenge on the persecutors. And Nicholas has a challenge. How do I shepherd my church through that? How do I do that? And so he just continued to remind them of John 13, 34, um, love one another. That's the greatest command Jesus gave us, he would say, love others. Nicholas had been through this great imprisonment, and it had strengthened him. He had grown a lot from it. He was now equipped to meet people in their suffering in ways he wasn't before. If he hadn't have been arrested and taken into captivity, he might not have been able to lead his church through this time. There's a story about a time when a famine hit Myra. Um, people were starving, I mean, severe famine. Um, Nicholas heard that grain shipping vessels had stopped off in the port in Myra, and um, they were on the way to Constantinople. And um, so Nicholas got up from his office, and he rushed down there. He rushed down to the port, and um, he met with the mariners, and he started begging them for grain for the people. And they told, and he said, I'll pay you good money for it. I'll pay you good money. We need this grain, or we're going to die. And the mariners told him, we, we can't give it to you. Um, that we would have, we'll have to answer for it if we get to Constantinople and we don't have all the grain that we were supposed to bring. And Nicholas told them, look, just trust God and do what's right. Sell us some grain. And he finally convinced them. He finally convinced them to give some grain. So legends arose, again, we don't know if this is true or not, but legends arose that when those mariners got to Constantinople, they had as much grain as they had had when they left Myra, when, when, they, when they arrived at Myra. So all the grain that they sold to Nicholas, God brought it back. That's what the legend says. Um, at one point, Constantine sent some generals down to handle a, a revolt in um, Fergia, and they had to stop in Myra on the way. And uh, while there, the three generals and their soldiers got into a brawl with some, with some locals in Myra. They got into a fight. And Nicholas heard about it, and he ran down there. And he, he confronted those Roman generals, and he said, look, if you're trying to promote peace, you're not doing a very good job because you're, you're, you're causing trouble in my town. You're wrecking this place. Get, get with the program. And at that rebuke, the generals called off the brawl, and they repaired all the damage that they had caused. 
And Nicholas invited those three generals over for dinner at his house. And while the four of them were headed to dinner, a man ran up to Nicholas, completely unrelated, but he ran up to Nicholas and told of something happening down in the town square. Apparently, the corrupt magistrate of Myra um, had ordered the execution of three innocent men. And Nicholas knew the men, and he knew they were innocent, so he rushed down to the town square, and he saw the executioner standing there. These three men are tied up. The executioner's got his sword up in the air, about to decapitate these guys. Nicholas rushes up and grabs the sword out of the guy's hand. And, and, and he, he, he goes and unties the three men. And the executioner didn't care. You know, he's going to get paid regardless. Um, and, and so the magistrate heard about this, and he rushed down there. And Nicholas ran up to the magistrate, this corrupt magistrate, and he said, You evil man, you can be sure I'm going to send word to Emperor Constantine about what kind of man you are. And the magistrate, um, because of coincidence, uh, Nicholas has these three Roman generals right behind him, and the magistrate sees that, and he just says, Okay, all right, I get it, I get it, I, I repent. And he confesses and begs for forgiveness from Nicholas because apparently he's got some credentials with him, these three, um, these three generals that just happen to be with him. Um, my favorite story of Nicholas involves what's called the Council of Nicaea. Um, in 325 AD, there was a major um, doctrinal division in the church. Um, a, a priest in Alexandria named Arius was teaching that Jesus is not God. Um, he taught that Jesus was created by God as God's son, but he was not eternal, and he was not co-equal with God. This is the same thing the Mormons teach today. Um, they, they teach what Arius taught. And so that teaching was causing major division and, and even some bloodshed. People were getting in fights over it. And Constantine recognized, we got to get this thing under control because it's causing some issues in the empire. So he called all the bishops together to settle the matter. And about three of them gathered at Constantine's palace in Nicaea, and they had a council meeting to determine, is Arius correct or not? And so Arius stood up, and he started defending his position. He started explaining how um, he believes that Jesus isn't, created, or isn't um, eternal, he's created. And Nicholas hears what the guy's saying, and Nicholas just gets infuriated. Because he's thinking back to all that time he suffered in prison for the Jesus of the Bible. And he's thinking, um, did I spend all those years in prison to listen to a man um, speak of my Jesus like this? And so Nicholas, um, Nicholas was so angry, so infuriated by this false teaching, he stood up from his seat. He walked up to Arius and he just slapped him across the face. He decked the halls with Arius. Arius had this happen to him, and he looks at the council, and he appeals to them, and he says, hey, are y'all going to do something about Nicholas? And so Nicholas was stripped of his priestly robes, and he was placed under guard for the rest of the meeting. The council concluded Arius was a heretic and wrote what has been called the Nicene Creed, one of the early creeds of the church. It says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. That's part of the creed. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. Um, when the council concluded, Nicholas was released and he was granted his position back. Um, perhaps Constantine um, or the council loved Arius getting slapped more than they cared to admit. Um, 
Nicholas lived out his years serving as bishop, doing all the normal pastoral duties. He would have done everything that I do and everything that any pastor does. He, he, he prayed, he preached, he served Myra, he sat at sick beds, he collected donations for the needy, counseled those troubled, he baptized converts and performed weddings and funerals, and he ordained other pastors. Um, as he got older, he found that his greatest joy came in the presence of children, uh, maybe that helps contribute to the Santa Claus story. Um, but he would sit and, and, and teach them about God's love regularly. And around 340 A.D., Nicholas fell ill and he passed away December 6th. Um, today, there's a festival on December 6th remembering Nicholas's life. Um, he was buried there in Myra. Quite a crazy history of his corpse. Um, he was buried there in Myra centuries after his death, um, the emperor of the Byzantine Empire um, ordered that there be construction of what's called the St. Nicholas Church and um, over the site where Nicholas would have served as bishop. And so they exhumed his body and they moved it to that, um, to, to that church. Um, and then in the 11th century, um, his remains were moved from there and enshrined in sacred relics in southern Italy. And then one more time, during the Crusades, they were removed again and transported to a monastery in Venice. And in 1953, they did an inspection of those bone fragments. And they claim it's the same guy's bones, but, but there's no way to authenticate it. So I don't know how you um, compare the findings in 1953 with bones from um, 1,700 years earlier, but, but that's what the people who analyzed it claim, is that it's his bones. Um, there's a lot of legends about Nicholas, as I said. I, I recommend this book to you if you want to read. It's a short book. Um, it's called The, the True St. Nicholas. It's where I got a lot of what I've talked about tonight. Um, it's by a guy named William Bennett. You may be familiar with William Bennett. I believe he served in the Reagan administration. He's an American historian, but he's written a book on St. Nicholas. Um, so, so I'd recommend you get that and check it out. Um, Let's just think about a few takeaways from Nicholas's life, and then we'll finish up. Um, I want to give you three takeaways from his life off of what we've just talked about. Um, first of all, boldly stand on truth. Nicholas endured the worst trials over truth. He held fast to Christ. He did not depart even under the worst torture. He would not compromise. We live in a day when people are compromising so easily. Very often out of love, um, they, they love a person that the truth disagrees with, so they quietly depart from the truth for the sake of that relationship. We, we don't cast people off for the sake, we, we don't cast people off for the sake of truth. We struggle through love and truth together. It's hard, but we hold fast to truth, and we love those who hate the truth at the same time. Nicholas was greatly concerned with correct doctrine. We see that in his situation with Arius. Um, and my concern is that most Christians would, wouldn't have even gotten out of whack over Arius' teachings. That They might have said, huh, that's a different perspective, never heard of it that way, but if that's what you want to believe, go ahead. M Mormons believe what Arius believed, and, and I, can tell, I can't tell you how many people I know who know a Mormon person, and they just nonchalantly say, they worship the same Jesus I do, and, and no, they don't. We worship a Jesus who's existed forever, who is God, who is equal with God. They worship a Jesus who's inferior to God, who's, who's been created by God. He's, he's as created as you and I are. 
if Jesus is not eternal, he can't be our savior and we're still in our sins. Nicholas knew that that was worth fighting over, literally. It greatly matters what you believe and what the church believes. Secondly, generously pour out of yourself. The, the, the one Nicholas, the story Nicholas is known for the most, the thing he's known for the most is his generosity. He, he's known as the gift giver at Christmas. But that all came out of a great desire to honor what Christ said and give himself away. Um, not making toys in a toy shop, literally giving away his inheritance. That's even beyond the generosity of many that I know. I know a lot of generous people. I'm looking at many of them right now. Um, but I've never seen someone give away their inheritance for the good of others. I'm not even necessarily saying that's what Jesus expects of all of us. I'm not that generous. But love is that of pouring out ourselves for others, laying our lives down for others, not counting out, not counting our desires as something as important, generously giving of our time, energy, money, and life to serve others. That's what Nicholas did. That's what Jesus did. That, that's what we're called to do. Thirdly and finally, make Christmas about Christ. Uh, about Christ. This is the one that has sadly been tarnished the most by the legend of Nicholas. In the great gift-giving story that involves Nicholas giving money to the three daughters, likely the basis for Santa Claus, what happens? Well, the father runs out of the house to Nicholas and wants to give Nicholas all the praise. And Nicholas says, no, give God the glory. Give God the glory. Nicholas didn't want credit for it. But he's the only one that gets the credit today. I think Nicholas would be very grieved over his image being used for such materialism today. Not if you do Santa or you're doing something wrong. I'm not saying that. But the general spirit of Christmas season in America is give me. I want gifts. Give me, give me, give me. It's why even today, when I finish opening gifts at Christmas, I have this inward feeling hit me that Christmas is over. The magic of Christmas is over because I got all my stuff. I got to open all the gifts. The thing that I've been staring at all month is done. And it's why children are bored by Jesus at Christmas but go crazy over Santa. You often hear people talk about keeping Christ in Christmas, yet sometimes those same people have Christ nowhere in their Christmas except in that phrase. But Santa's everywhere for them. My, my worry for a lot of Americans is Jesus could not exist, and it wouldn't change their Christmas celebration very much, or at all. And I just think Nicholas would want Jesus to be the focus of our Christmas, not himself. I think he would say what John the Baptist says, he must increase, and I must decrease. So I challenge you this Christmas, whatever your family does with Santa, find ways for Santa to decrease and Jesus to increase. That's what Nicholas would want. That's what Jesus wants. And that's what Jesus deserves. And Nicholas's life gives witness to that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of Nicholas, and I thank you that we'll get to see him someday, and we'll get to talk to him, and we'll get to hear um, which of these stories were true and which ones weren't, and we'll get to hear even more stories of the things he did. What a wonderful life to, to study. Um, Lord, I pray that his life and his story and his character and his passion would, would spur us on to um, pursue Jesus more, to love Jesus, to give glory to Jesus. 
for Jesus is the one who deserves it. And so, Father, these fun things that we do at Christmas, whether it's Santa or trees or gifts or, or um, reindeer or, or whatever, I pray those would be um, ornaments on the tree that draw us, um, that, that just simply ornaments on the tree of, of, of our celebration of Jesus himself. And I pray that Jesus would never be sidelined in, 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 in the Christmas season. May we worship him this year. May we draw near to him, and may he be our um, heart's desire. In Jesus' name, amen.